Welcome to the American Planning Association podcast. This episode continues our series that looks at how different communities prepared for and responded to natural hazards such as floods, wildfires, hurricanes, and more. How have planners in these communities promoted resilience in their hazard mitigation and disaster recovery planning? We'll find out on this episode of Resilience Roundtable brought to you in conjunction with the American Planning Association's Hazard Mitigation and Disaster Recovery Planning Division. I'm your host, Jim Schwab, FAICP. I'm chair of APA's Hazard Mitigation and Disaster Recovery Planning Division. Our guest today is Douglas Lee, AICP, Disaster Recovery Officer at the County of Hawaii. So Douglas, welcome to the show. Welcome to the podcast. Let's start with your own background in the planning field. What brought you into planning and specifically into the subject of hazard mitigation and disaster recovery? Did you have any involvement before the Kilauea eruption, or is that the event that made you a recovery planner? (laughs) Um, Jim, you know, thanks for having me. Uh, Really happy to be part of our community, uh, working on uh, rebuilding communities and helping folks uh, prepare for future disasters. Uh, you know, I think my path to planning was an interesting one. Um, really, as a young person and exploring my career, I always had a really sharp focus on um, issues of social justice. Um, and uh, planning, I think, became the the mechanism by which to explore that work. Uh, and so um, even uh, besides pursuing the form, more formal training, um, my interest was always in uh, racial justice issues um, and also community development, economic justice issues. And so... Um, really, my first role as a planner was taking experience as doing community organizing and, and resident leadership development and working in more kind of brick and mortar community development fields, whether it be access to capital, um, home ownership, um, affordable housing preservation, and resident leadership issues. Um, how I got into this disaster recovery work uh, was really about pursuing opportunities. And so while um, I had worked for a number of years in, in community development, um, and actually served at a, a community development corporation um, during Hurricane Sandy in New York City, uh, where I've worked a lot of my career. Uh, we served three uh, working class immigrant waterfront communities. And so in the weeks that followed, you know, we were focusing on making sure that people had a had a right to vote um, right after that late October uh, hurricane and, and, you know, walking up eight flights of stairs in the dark to give out food. Um, you know, that that's really the experience a lot of folks have after a uh, a natural disaster. Uh, a couple of years later, um, there was an opportunity to work in city government. And so I ended up joining the mayor's office of recovery and resiliency at the time um, in a leadership role. And, and really that helped me to uh, learn a lot more about um, not only the disaster recovery world, uh, but also the broader area of uh, climate change adaptation um, and that nexus with climate change mitigation as well. Uh, and so uh, I feel very honored that uh, now that I'm in my role here with the island of uh, Hawaii and, and within the county, uh, to be able to bring some of that knowledge, some of those lessons learned in terms of uh, supporting the recovery from the 2018 Kilauea eruption. Great. Well, you know, for people less familiar with Hawaii, Hawaii County is the county that covers what many people refer to as the Big Island, uh, where all the active volcanoes are still located in Hawaii. Puna is the district of the island that has a history of eruptions from the Kilauea volcano. Uh, How have communities lived with the risk of volcanic activity? And how has the county responded to prior eruptions and and other natural disasters? Uh, So the the big island, the island of Hawaii, is essentially uh, large enough to fit all of the other major islands of the state of Hawaii and this archipelago in. Um, so we are big in that respect. Um, we are a predominantly uh, rural island. So we do have town centers um, that, in, at least in modern history, were built up around the former industry of, of, of plantation and agriculture. Uh, and in this area of Puna, where the Kilauea eruption occurred, uh, it is a mixture of you know, some town centers and a lot of agricultural conservation areas. Uh, it, there's no question that I think what, what sets this, this issue of uh, disaster recovery and, and planning for um, hazard mitigation within a context of volcanic activity is different than, um, say, how we often talk about hurricane seasons, right, or kind of long-term projections relative to sea, rise, uh, sea level rise. 
uh, the geology is there. The geology lives in, in much longer timescales than our human experience and really goes back uh, generations, centuries, millennia, essentially. And so our experience of volcanic activity um, is really a, a point in time, right? Um, when you're really looking at the larger geological context of, uh, of the volcanoes that we inhabit. Uh, the communities that um, make up Puna, uh, but also that live on the slopes of volcanoes across our island, uh, of which there are five and four of which are geologically active, um, understand what it means to live on a volcano. Um, the earthquakes that happen with regularity, uh, the VOG that occurs uh, when there are active eruptions and, and persistent eruptions, as uh, we're seeing now with the return of the lava lake at uh, Halemaumau Crater of the Kilauea volcano. Um, but I think also our communities understand what, what it means to look back in history. Um, and, and I think it's important to call out that a lot of what I'll share is at a very high level, right? Um, like with any community, um, there are many perspectives and many facets to people's visions for what the community should be um, and also what this recovery process could look like. Um, but in kind of our conversation, I'll also be sure to really paint the broader picture, really lift up all those voices, even sometimes if it sounds like they're uh, in conflict. So there are folks in the community who really understand the longer uh, historical context of uh, this geological activity. Uh, you know, Native Hawaiians have lived on this island chain for over a thousand years. And in that time have really built a lot of knowledge of what it means to live uh, with with volcanoes. Uh, and um, there is a broader cultural context, uh, a spiritual and religious one as well, um, that I'm not an expert in, so I won't hazard to, to really dive deep into. Um, but I think from a planner's position, right, and how we understand it, uh, whether it be oral histories, uh, cultural traditions, social norms around living with these physical changes that volcanoes uh, kind of birth, uh, a lot of that is really a knowledge base, right, that folks build and rebuild their communities around and have for centuries on this island. Um, now we're grappling with it in a more modern context uh, in terms of property rights and land use and infrastructure and, and hazard mitigation planning. Um, but, uh, I, you know, clearly there are perspectives in the community that recognize that following an eruption, following a lava flow, um, there needs to be time for the land to heal before we can return. Uh, and there are a lot of signs and, and guideposts and facts uh, within that context um, that tell us when, right? So a certain type of firm being able to reestablish itself um, or when nature has kind of done its part, right? Yeah, well, you used one term that I suspect is probably not terribly familiar to people who don't live in areas where volcanoes exist, such as Hawaii or parts of the northwest coast of, of the uh, the U.S., uh, which is VOG. Could you explain what VOG is and how it affects people? Um, of course. Uh, so VOG is the volcanic equivalent of smog. Uh, so natural gases that are released from a volcanic activity um, that interact with particles in the air, light, and, and create a haze, essentially. Um, there's both a, a physical presence, right, in terms of what you can see, uh, just like how cities do grapple with smog, uh, but in the same way, there are also health impacts as well. So uh, for individuals of our community who are experiencing respiratory issues or other types of conditions um, that are impacted by poor air quality, uh, VOG has that impact on, on folks during uh, active eruptions. One other thing, in the plan, it mentions lava inundation. And inundation, it, for most people, is something that involves water. And of course, the water rises and then it falls away and things, you know, there are impacts. Things get wet, things get flooded, things get destroyed. But lava inundation involves a, uh, somewhat of a different dynamic. Can you talk about that for a second? With the experience of lava inundation, it is a very, is very physical in nature. It is earth recreating itself. Um, for this eruption that covered approximately 13.7 square miles of existing land during the eruption, um, but also created 875 acres of new land where lava entered the shoreline, um, it, it substantially changed our entire geography. And essentially, when uh, you look at the area of the eruption, you know, some parts which we have come to know as residential neighborhoods, as conservation districts, as farms, as uh, forest reserves uh, are now covered by 
5, 20, 80 feet of lava, these places we once knew. Um, and that material will be with us, right, for the rest of the life of this island. So what rebuilding, redevelopment means um, is, a, is a different context than when we talk about inundation of water, say. Um, and the, the recovery planning and, and how we think about um, what happens next as planners also takes on many different other facets. So one being this issue of time and, and, you know, whether an area was formerly agricultural, whether it was a residential neighborhood, when is it possible to consider redevelopment? Um, one of the factors is around the geological conditions that enable infrastructure, that enable resettlement, right? Um, one of the assets that were lost during this eruption was water supply lines. And because of the temperatures that are still present and quite high under the surface of what we understand to be the eruption, um, you know, the inundation of the lava, it can be quite hot. Uh, just this past week, we've had some pretty substantial rain. And in the area of the eruption, it is quite steamy to the point that actually it's caused some whiteout conditions along the roads um, that have been restored to date. Uh, you know, restoring roads uh, that have been inundated by lava have different complications um, than say after a, a landslide or after a flooding event where you're removing debris and perhaps potentially restabilizing underneath the roadbeds. Uh, it's removing rock. But before you can move rock, you have to wait for the earth material to be cool enough and safe enough, right, to be rebuilt. And in one of the first roads that we restored following the eruption um, as an emergency procedure, uh, we did see damage to some of our heavy equipment because of the heat. And so I, I, bring, I bring these up as examples because the context is different, even though a lot of the underpinning challenges we face as planners um, and folks working in the community on this recovery are, are similar. Um, we really have to incorporate these other considerations, these other facets of what this eruption meant and, and how it actually drives the timing, the how of uh, recovery in the area. Yeah, there's, uh, there's some specific realities that have to be taken into account. So um, did the county have a mitigation plan in place beforehand? And in your view, how well did it did that or other plans address the, the sorts of impacts that you've just described? Um, you know, did Hawaii County and its people learn anything as a result of Kilauea and this recent eruption? Uh, the county does have a history of, of developing and implementing a multi-hazard mitigation plan. Um, there's no question that the, the different hazard exposures related to volcanic activity, both the physical that we've talked about, lava inundation, earthquakes, uh, but also the more environmental factors like uh, air quality uh, or gas or heat um, are have been factored in. Uh, I think as, as a rural jurisdiction, uh, implementing those plans, right? Coming up with 100 projects or whatever the list may be, and actually finding the resources, the feasibility, um, and the partners to implement those projects has always been a challenge. I don't think that's unique to our island in that respect. Uh, interestingly enough, when the eruption did occur in 2018, uh, the county was gearing up for a number of different planning processes, uh, both an ongoing update to our uh, general plan for the county, uh, an update to the that was time for 2020 to the multi-hazard mitigation plan, that five-year update, which we recently completed, uh, and, and an additional other related areas, kind of looking at tourism, looking at economic development. And so when it came time to really plan for this recovery effort, uh, we made sure that all of these processes were speaking to one another and, and really to find those points of nexus and alignment uh, were at all possible. Of course, now we're in implementation mode, and that's where the work really uh, begins uh, in terms of how we've made, found points of alignment, but also what do we do about it? Um, you know, I think that a lot of in a lot of ways, the 2018 eruption is spoken about in terms of its unprecedented nature. Um, and it's not unprecedented with the respect of uh, the actual geological features of the eruption itself, right? I think this area of Puna um, has seen eruptions of a, a similar scale um, and impact. But there are just things about kind of the human side of the eruption that made it incredibly unprecedented. Um, 2018 actually bookended what was previously a 35-year eruption that began in 1983, um, also in the Lower East Rift Zone, um, that inundated several areas in Kalapana and Kaimu, um, essentially more adjacent to what folks understand as the, the National Park. 
right? Folk love Hawaii Volcano National Park. And uh, during that 30-year eruption, um, those areas were, were inundated. Um, some natural resources were also either cut off or inundated in the process. Uh, but the response, the recovery resources um, didn't necessarily come the way that they have come now. And so um, it's a it's a good thing to have resources to be able to help communities recover. Um, but it also brings an unprecedented nature, right? Um, as a as an island within the Central Pacific, uh, we're very accustomed to natural disasters here, tsunamis, uh, hurricanes, uh, and volcanic activity. Uh, but just the scale kind of where the Kilauea eruption of 2018 impacted our communities, um, the extent, the, you know, the significant lava river that occurred, um, and also the resources that have come to really manage recovery, have those are really unprecedented facets of it. Um, and, and, you know, interestingly, we, we, we talk about the communities that were impacted by the eruption. Um, there are voices and, and, and really interest to, uh, to return and to rebuild, right? To, uh, to put down earth, to reestablish farms, um, to really think about what um, reinvesting in this community looks like. And as planners, um, we embrace kind of all of these realities, right? So while there, there are responsibilities around public health and safety, um, there are tools like land use and hazard mitigation plans that can help communities be more resilient to future disruptions like an eruption or a hurricane. In this recovery process, we essentially are um, lifting up kind of this issue of choice and trying to manage that. Um, I do think that it is a responsible path, even if it is a much more complex path um, in this recovery effort. The uh, Kilauea Recovery and Resilience Plan took you about two years to develop before it was released. Um, some people have been off their land an entire time with the U.S. Geological Survey saying it may take that long for the land to cool, something you were just referring to, uh, while other areas may take seven years or more because of trapped heat. How do these geological timelines for healing the land compare to the some of the human expectations about recovering lost homes and lost businesses? Uh, you know, the set of issues really is our, our struggle right now. Um, there's no question that uh, we're almost three years to the beginning of the eruption. Um, May 2021 will be that mark. Uh, the eruption itself lasted for over three months. Um, but how do we think about action now while also needing to set things in motion that helps a long-term recovery? Uh, you know, as a planner and, and as someone kind of working in the community, um, I think it's really important to honor the fact that uh, small steps can also have large impact in terms of supporting um, recovery at an individual household level. Um, there's no question that there are many in our community who need the roads restored, want water returned, um, want buybacks, um, and also want to return to their land. Um, all of that is part of the ongoing work within the community. Uh, we need to really balance uh, decisions we can make now to help provide that immediate relief and that immediate recovery, um, while also putting things in motion for the future. Uh, and as we look at the, the impacted area, you know, earlier we talked about lava inundation as a context. Um, the lava inundation, because of its kind of very physical, long-term nature of, of earth and material, right, once it cools, isolated many homes as well and farms as well. And so when you look at what types of recovery can be enabled today versus really what takes more time, whether it be the lava cooling issue, um, creation of policies to support recovery. When you have a five acre lot that was maybe two thirds covered by lava, but the home remained, or you can reestablish a farm, all you need is road access back in to be able to do that. Um, that is a very different conversation today in recovery than say other parts of our uh, our island or in the end, this district that were uh, impacted by the eruption um, that were completely inundated, right? Where road access is important, but even access to the broader area that that was a neighborhood or that was a farm, um, it's starting from a very different place. Uh, and so, you know, it's, it's, we really have to be sensitive to the now, the, the immediate actions and the value that that can have in recovery um, and the, the longer term um, that will take time. You know, one additional perspective is also around the county's role, the community's role, and um, collective action, right? And so um, there's no question that when it comes to public infrastructure, when it comes to the delivery of federal funds the county is receiving to support recovery, a lot of key decisions, authorities, uh, 
jurisdictionally are with the county to make. Uh, we work with uh, a task force with community members. We spend a lot of time kind of understanding where the, the conflicts are and how we can move forward. Uh, but there's no question that the, the final decisions do rest with us as a local government. Um, but that doesn't mean that there isn't recovery activity and action that can take place with the county just at the table or supporting, um, including some direct investments that we've helped to facilitate to reestablish farms, to reestablish the school that was lost. Uh, you know, it's, it's not an, it's all or nothing, right? But to really look at, you know, nearly three years in, what progress have we made? Um, what's enabled that? And then what's the work that is still to be done? I think a final piece that's also important to to lift up is the fact that much like other disasters, uh, the the 2018 eruption didn't change the legal entitlements that the subdivisions, the individual parcels, all had. Right, all the underlying land use um, is is there, uh, whether it be the state land use or the county land use uh, for Hawaii, and so. What do we do about that? Uh, you know, we have private subdivisions with private roads that have really grappled with whether to rebuild. Uh, one does not see rebuilding in the eruption area that was inundated as a way forward. Um, another subdivision is really focused and, and really wanting to work with the county and work with their local community to reestablish, right? And rebuild kind of road by road, lot by lot. Um, and so really where we're trying to focus, right? What is the role of the county then in terms of uh, coordinating this recovery process, administering uh, recovery funds, but also um, exercising the jurisdictional authorities that we have around land use and, and engineering, et cetera. We've really got to look at those conditions we've talked about, heat, the, the physical conditions of the lava field, and really take a hard look at what our codes and standards can enable um, and what it can prohibit. And And that's really a process we're just starting now kind of with the release of the plan and, and two years in, um, you know, I think like other communities facing sea level rise or, or climate change, uh, you don't just flip a switch and all of a sudden you know what's going to happen. You know what the future holds um, in a more perfect world. A lot of this planning around what happens after a, a massive flood or a lava inundation um, should be on the books, right? The preparedness. And so we have those policy tools in place. Uh, we're not there. Most communities do not find that path until after the disaster. And that's, I think, one part of human nature and governance. Um, so we're there right now. Um, and I think as planners, there's a, there's a lot that we can chart um, and lead within our state and within this field of recovery. Uh, but it's still a, a work in progress in that respect. Um, you know, our buyout program uh, related to the volcanic eruption will be the first, if not one of the first, within the state of Hawaii, even though it's been a topic that's been discussed for probably over a decade uh, relative to uh, coastal erosion and sea level rise, for example. Yeah, let me follow up on that issue about buyouts. Because um, buyouts with federal disaster recovery and mitigation funds, they raise some interesting questions about hazard mitigation, property rights, land use, long-term management of the uh, the land area. Um, Native Hawaiian families may have some different perspectives from other residents about giving up lands and property rights. And, you know, as we know, federal funds are tied to specific disasters. They're not looking at the larger picture most of the time. Um, so cultural and economic timelines don't always match up with our uh, planning or financial timelines, right? So how as a planner do you help reconcile or ameliorate these different perspectives on recovery? So as a planner, uh, you have to really go to your core roots, right? Um, and it's what I say, what I mean when I say that is um, to first and foremost, understand what the, the, the bedrock of the desire and the visions for recovery of the imp impact communities are. And what listening and understanding it and really uh, having a clear sense of what's at the root of these different perspectives, uh, whether uh, folks' option is to return and rebuild or looking to to move on, like through a buyout program. Uh, you know, within the the implementation of this of this program, it's I really I want to be honest around what really a buyout can accomplish for our community. Um, for many, it's about reestablishing permanent housing, a roof over their heads. Um, and also their financial lives, right, being pieced back together. Uh, a lot of 
Households had trouble accessing insurance related to volcanic activity um, for many folks, whether they're retirees or, or, or middle-aged families or young families. Many of their assets were actually tied up in the home they may have lost. Um, and so besides just being physically displaced following the eruption from their home, um, many people's financial lives have really been t- torn asunder. Um, and something like the Bio Program can help people rebuild their financial lives, um, kind of put roots back in the ground, right, wherever that may be for them. Um, there's no surprise that among the communities that were directly impacted by the eruption, more than 80% of people we've surveyed want to return to the Pune area, right? And so how, how, does, how can we enable that to happen? Um, I think another consideration is also around uh, this issue of, of property and, and land. Um, and I think that also really warrants an honest conversation, right? There's no question that it's 2021. Um, we live in a state that is part of a larger nation. There are property rights and laws and, you know, at both at the federal state level, but also county code that really govern these issues of ownership and rights and takings and um, access, right? Um, so that provides a, clearly a path of how to navigate um, these questions of a buyout, but it, I think it also presents some policy tools that are quite interesting. Um, I think when, I think two perspectives that I think are really important to share in this conversation are um, a recognition that I do hear from a lot of members of the community that, you know, this is their home. It, the eruption doesn't change that. And even with full acknowledgement of the hazards that living in these high uh, eruption risk areas, right? In our, in our case, lava zones one, lava zones two, um, that folks have the mindset that uh, I understand that Pele may come, the eruption may happen again. I may lose my home. If I can get 20 years out of it, 15 years out of it, for me, the, the benefit of, of being able to, to cultivate this land um, is, is there, right? Um, and, and that's a very honest perspective. I think from uh, another really challenging way to think about it is what does it mean to actually um, put your property through a buyout? Um, land that has been within families for generations, um, land that has value, you, you know, lowercase v, beyond just what's on the real property tax rolls, right? Um, the historical and uh, lineal connection to this place, um, the cultivation of, of, of crops, um, and um, in some cases, um, its relationship to subsistence of Native Hawaiian families as well. Um, and um, while the realities of the eruption doesn't take away some of these more um, financial considerations and the fact that people are, many people have faced really severe housing insecurity following the eruption, um, you know, when you look at it from some perspective um, and with this native Hawaiian lens on it, um, the question that it has been asked is, you know, why do I have to give up my land, right? Why do I have to give up this land that is of, of certain value to my family and my descendants um, in order to piece my life back together today following the eruption? Um, and, and I think all of these uh, realities that we're, that we're really understanding deeply from the community um, underpin this perspective of choice. Um, but the choice also requires, I think, from a local government level, um, a responsibility of understanding um, the why and the how of, of policy or, or actions that inform kind of what happens to the land afterwards. And so, you know, while in recent months we've really been focused on standing up this buyout program, um, the government funding related to it is as complex as you can imagine um, in terms of uh, federal assistance after a disaster but one thing that we are starting to map out, I think, depending on how the the bio program is implemented, is what does long term management of these lands look like? Um, I don't think this is a challenge that's unique to us. I think other states and other local jurisdictions that have run bio programs for decades uh, have grappled with this. Uh, so, you know, when you have five lots bought out where there used to be ten neighbors, right? Um, how do you manage that from a parcel by parcel basis? Uh, what is the role of the county in terms of what in a normal, more normal situation, the analogy would be who's going to cut the grass every week, right? Um, not necessarily our case here in the inundated lands. Um, but then how do we take it a step further, right? And so um, how do we explore things like access agreements or easements um, even after a property kind of goes through a buyout um, so that if there is a way to maintain a connection for that, that family, that household to the land, um, we enable that. Um, if there's the right assemblage of parcels or condition of parcel, is is there a way to actually think about active programming of the space? Um, has to stay open space, but it doesn't have to be fallow, right? Um, or even if there are agricultural leases or or kind of having local community associations administer the land, 
um, as long as they meet certain conditions that that come with the federal funding to keep it open space. Um, I think the other kind of quirky planning note to it is that you know in the in a floodplain management context, um, the the how and the what's of what can happen to that land are very well spelled out. Um, relative to what we know on lava, right? And so if you've got an ag structure, it just cannot have four sides. Uh, that's mitigation against future flooding. Um, that same type of mitigation context doesn't exist uh, in terms of any future lava floats uh, for an area that's been bought out, for example. Um, so we're still writing the book on that and, and looking at what precedence there is, uh, where we can find it. Well, thank you for that. That actually leads to another question I have, which is, going to explore some of the innovations possibly what land use tools are under consideration out there for addressing these issues and might any of them be a departure from your existing practice in Hawaii with regard to disaster recovery planning uh you know i wish i had more answers to that question today uh you know i think the reality is that uh we don't have a lot of tools related to policy, uh, but also that any tools we develop needs need to be developed, uh, you know, with the uh, with the lens of local government and the uh, jurisdiction and authorities that we have, uh, but also with communities um, like like I have have mentioned, you know, there is a broad range of what recovery looks like um, in these impacted communities from the 2018 eruption. Um, and so we are just starting to think about what tools exist and what tools need to be put in place to facilitate recovery, um, but also to um, facilitate resilience against future eruptions, right? I think we have to think about those those two outcomes hand in hand as we think about policy issues. Um, really one of the issues we're grappling with in terms of facilitating recovery and, and, and redevelopment essentially is um, how can the building code be flexed to enable uh, redevelopment in the inundation area. Um, we are in a part of our island that is not uncommon um, where there aren't uh, municipal wastewater systems, right? And so even prior to the eruption and in many parts of, of the Pune district and other districts of our island, it's a lot of cesspools uh, and individual wastewater. Um, any new construction per state law must require an individual wastewater system. Um, and if, it, if there is a sewer system, it must connect. And so in this area that's still affected by heat, for example, where, where lava did emerge and did inundate the land or where it remains in a magma dike underneath the ground, um, how do you, how do you design a septic system, um, where water boils every time it rains, you know, and, and does that same septic system, um, function in the same way, given the heat and the porous nature of lava rock? Right, relative to more soil conditions that um, we understand. Uh, it really gets down to that level of detail of understanding, again, how do we flex our current codes to enable folks to rebuild? Um, we're faced with choices too around whether uh, some scale of agriculture makes sense for this area moving forward um, as, a, uh, as an economically but kind of viable and feasible way to help our communities recover, um, whether we build structures and, and whether it's you know a limit to size, a limit to mobility, um, so that should there be future eruption, there's that adaptability of, of it. Um, because folks can live their lives on, on portions of, of this area, right? Until the next eruption um, was just, it's just a matter of when and not if, um, and, but we don't have those, those tools. And then towards the second outcome of uh, facilitating resilience, uh, we are starting to look at issues related to hazard overlays that can bolster some of these things I mentioned, right? And so um, not only talking about volcanic activity as a hazard, but looking at issues of tsunami, inundation, or um, storm surge related to hurricanes, you know, an overlay doesn't mean that you know, nothing can happen, right? Um, an overlay really means contextualizing um, how what is already there, whether it be conservation or built, um, can be managed, um, whether, you know, new subdivisions come in or not. Um, and there hasn't been a new subdivision platted in this kind of Pune district in a number of decades um, for very clear reasons, um, even though it is an area that is um, very populated, right, and has seen the most significant growth over the past couple of decades, even for our state. How do we think about hazards and um, overlays in future land use that is contextual, again, for um, the, what is there now, but also informing and shaping what is there for the future? 
Um, I think it's also a sub discussion there, right? Is that's also important to call out is how do we grapple with residential uses, agricultural uses versus commercial uses? Um, like I mentioned earlier, our town, our town centers are really the hub across our islands. And so even if a town center is in a, a higher hazard area, you know, the town of Pahoa uh, was spared during the 2018 eruption. Um, lava did not get close. Uh, but in a 2014 eruption, lava got right to the edge of town, um, essentially, where, you know, some of the big box or, or national chain stores were thinking about how to relocate their inventory, for example, in containers, um, should the lava reach the town. You know, this, these places have been there and provide services and goods and access to our communities that are still called this area home, right? And so how do we think about contextual management, if not kind of redevelopment of these town centers to still serve the function that they always have, uh, but also the, to then look at it with a, with a hazard in mind. Uh, and, and a volcanic activity is very unique in that there isn't a lot you can actually mitigate in place, uh, but for getting out of the way, um, which is the ultimate uh, mitigation action here. Um, that leaves our communities very few choices, right? And, and so we have to really think creatively about it, um, you know, in the way that other areas, you know, where they have town centers, downtowns in, in flood plains, uh, there are wet, you know, dry flood mitigation, wet flood mitigation that they can explore, incentivizing retrofits, elevating utilities. Um, what are what are our equivalents, right? Um, that might have to be less at a building scale and more so at a, a regional scale. Um, so, you know, I hope that in a year or two, if we ever get a chance to reconnect, um, there are, there's a lot more, I think, ideas and and solutions that we can really talk about um, as we as we walk through down this path um, from a planning perspective and with the impact to communities. Well, that certainly sounds intriguing and challenging. Can you give me some perspective on the sorts of social and economic equity questions that uh, affect recovery there. Uh, what is different from communities on the continent and what might be very similar and familiar to planners elsewhere? Um, just as an example, for instance, how do income constraints and you know asset limit realities, similar realities like that, how do those affect people's thinking about buyouts or resettlement in those areas. Right. So I, I think a very clear similarity uh, that we experience here uh, that other communities on the continent may also experience um, is the relationship of First Nations to land, right? Um, and so here for uh, the Hawaiian community, um, really grappling with what long-term responsibility to land means, um, both kind of across generations uh, towards the future, um, the cultural significance of, of land as well, and how that sometimes can come into conflict with the very transactional contemporary worldview of how our systems and laws are built related to private property and entitlements. Um, we could spend a whole podcast talking about that. Um, but I think uh, we are trying to connect with other other jurisdictions that um, also are, are working with First Nations uh, and Indigenous communities on disaster recovery. Um, to see kind of what they've learned in the process and how to really um, think about partnership and, and kind of a, a cultural context to what is a very formalized kind of federal government policy uh, process sometimes. You know, the area uh, that was impacted by the 2018 eruption, the Pune district, uh, is an area that is economically diverse with concentrations of um, economically disenfranchised households, uh, as well as uh, wealthier communities as well kind of interspersed. Um, it is an area that has seen significant growth over the past decade or two um, in a situation where as a, the state as a whole has been losing population because of a lot of economic realities and um, social and political forces. And so folks are calling Pune home. There's no question about it, right? And um, and there's some real reasons why that's the case. And so for like, how do, how do we kind of think about that and grapple with that from a planning perspective? is first off, just acknowledging the uh, social, political, economic realities, right? Um, the choices folks may make around participating in a voluntary housing buyout program may be driven by people's financial realities, you know, since the eruption, since losing access to their land or losing the home that um, they lived in, uh, their financial life is, is a bit of a shambles too. And so um, accessing that capital, right, those assets to be able to secure new housing, to pay off debt that is sometimes a solution after 
a disruptive event like a natural disaster, um, those all come into play. Um, and the economic disparities that communities face across the country that then get kind of uh, highlighted or exposed during a natural disaster. Um, I mean, I think that's a, that's a very common dynamic. Um, for households that could afford lab insurance, if they could get it, um, it was a very high premium. Um, and so um, what after the eruption, people had that kind of resource to rebuild um, for families that could not afford that, that high level of insurance premium or couldn't access it, um, then they they didn't have it, right? And so that's a similar story as um, how folks manage flood insurance, for example, um, nationally. Um, so what is the solution, right? Uh, this, the first and foremost is really um, being incredibly cognizant and acting on these structural inequities that our communities face. Um, and in the implementation and the deployment of these kind of uh, federal recovery resources, um, really acting with, with, with those structures in mind. Um, for example, you know, one thing we grappled with was how to, how to structure a buyout program um, with these questions of, of, of fiscal equity in mind. Um, and, you know, there's no easy answer, right? Anyone who's worked on this type of housing program will tell you that. Um, but we made a very conscious decision to look at um, the pre-disaster value of property, first and foremost, um, given that many of the inundated properties today um, remain to have very almost zero market value. Um, and so how do we start from there, this pre-disaster value? Um, a second look was understanding what the range was, right? So uh, while there were... Um, higher value homes, beachfront communities that were uh, inundated and, and, and displaced by this eruption. Um, there were also more working class communities too and everything in between. And so when we looked at the data, right, um, essentially when you, we looked at the pre-disaster value of primary homes um, that were uh, inundated, otherwise destroyed by the lava eruption, um, about 300 plus in total, 75% of those properties uh, were $300,000 or less. Um, so there were some outliers in the higher end, but I think that was really important data to look at in terms of understanding um, the fiscal context of this property loss and damage. Um, and so we we did kind of some more analysis and we found that uh, kind of the, the median pre-disaster value of primary homes um, was $230,000 plus or minus. And so, you know, we looked at that as, okay, is that a way that we could kind of cap it? Right, cap the the grant. So even if we're honoring pre-disaster value, um, how do we think about um, a, a cap that serves the most number of people, that kind of balances the realities of the market prior to the disaster, um, but is still enough for folks to rebuild their lives, essentially, right? And so, you know, for that family that got a hundred fifty thousand dollar SBA loan to go rebuild a new home, can they take this grant award and pay that off and and be free and clear, potentially, right? Or you know, we also know families that um, took the individual assistance from FEMA, bought a piece of property, and that's as far as that money went. And so they're still without a home or camping on the property. Um, what can enable those folks to connect to the right resources uh, to rebuild? Um, another reality is that many of the families were also single or two-person households, many of them seniors, kupuna, um, in local vernacular. And so following this disaster and the, eruption, the disruption that it brought, you know, what does future housing look for them as a solution, right? Um, given, you know, if, if, if say they had, they can get a $100,000 grant for the modest home that they had, um, they might need an additional $30,000, but maybe that is affordable as a, a 10-year mortgage, right? Um, as opposed to starting from scratch or starting with nothing, um, um, which is a reality that many families still face. Um, and so, you know, these are real technical pieces of program design, but I think it is how how we looked at some of the um, the financial and structural realities uh, within our community prior to the event, and and took action on it in terms of implementation. Okay, I'd like to close by zeroing in on on one thing we've touched on but haven't attacked quite so directly, which is the science. You know, science is a huge influence on the realities of what planning can and should do in disasters. And I'm sure that's the case with volcanic eruptions. Uh, but you also have to worry about hurricanes and tsunamis where you're located. How have you incorporated science into planning with respect to geologic and other natural hazards in Hawaii County? 
and what, what sort of progress has science made possible for planning? Uh, you know, who are your most essential partners in working on this issue? Uh, so in a volcanic hazard context, science is, is really fundamental. Um, our closest partners are the U.S. Geological Survey, um, the Hawaii Volcanoes Observatory uh, that's based here, and the really the, the centuries of knowledge, both kind of written and oral, um, and the more kind of recent modern scientific knowledge base of, of what volcanic activity and its impacts on our places, our lives actually looks like. Um, uh, it is a very different time scale, right, in terms of looking back, um, but it's also a very different time scale in terms of looking forward. Um, you know, Hawaii is, is a state that has been planning for climate change disruption and the climate crisis for some time. And so there is a, a, a knowledge base um, following the model of the IPCC and, and how other folks are leading climate change action across the world. You know, there's a recognition of um, getting down to the science, looking at the science, having science inform future policy and thinking about adaptation as a, as a, as a progression, right? Resilience as a process and not an outcome is um, what a very good friend of mine once told me that I, I kind of keep close to my heart. So when it comes to volcanic activity, we have to look at what has happened in the past. Um, in many ways, though, the only, predict the only thing predictive uh, about volcanic activity is that it'll happen again. Um, and that is different in terms of how we think about predicting uh, sea level rise or, or, or storm surge flooding, for example, or the frequency intensity of hurricanes. Um, you know, I think that one of the interesting parallels is uh, the fact that climate change adaptation and flood mapping, for example, right, looks at prior flood activity to really map in place where flooding is likely to occur and on what kind of time intervals, a probability. Uh, and only in recent years have we started to think about kind of laying onto that the the probability of changing conditions of climate and how that that actually affects um, very static products like flood maps. Um, for volcanic activity, it's it is about history. Um, it's looking at patterns of eruptions within the the geological system of a volcano, um, both the the magma system as well as the the rock um, adjacent to it, and it's observational more than it is predictive. And so um, folks monitor the volcanoes on our island on a daily basis. Um, they look at indicators like inflation. They look at indicators like earthquake swarms um, that can, within a near or short notice, kind of point a direction that the chance of eruption may be growing or, whoa, an eruption is about to start. <laughs> Um, and so it's the work with the U.S. Geological Survey and the scientists there, right, that really um, underpins um, how we think about readiness. Uh, you know, earlier we talked about air quality and this issue of fog, so a volcanic smog. Um, one thing that uh, has really um, been a point of focus is how do we not only document and map where uh, fog occurs, uh, essentially downwind of where the volcanic activity is happening, um, but also how do we think about communication, so not only helping residents of our state, because uh, because the VOG can reach and affect folks as far as um, Oahu uh, when it is stronger or when the winds kind of match up. Um, how do we think about a tool that 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 promotes communication and knowledge about VOG and its impacts, both in uh, blue sky days uh, where the VOG is just doing its thing, um, but also in more immediate situations like an eruption. So. You know, during the eruption in 2018, for example, you know, clearly on any given hour, any given day, monitoring the indicators of where an eruption um, could happen in a neighborhood um, or on a, or in an agricultural district um, was very real time. But we were managing evacuation orders uh, in advance as much as possible, not only in terms of um, the the risk for a physical eruption occurring, a fissure opening up, uh, but also the uh, effusion of noxious gases from that volcanic activity. So even if uh, an eruption wasn't likely to occur within a five mile radius of where you were, um, there might've been really high risk of, of deadly gases reaching you and managing that. And so, you know, we're, we're exploring something like a, a VOG notification system that does already exist um, in terms of just tracking and mapping um, with partners like the university um, here in the state of Hawaii um, and other university partners around the country. Um, but how do we have these two use cases, right? Understanding the day-to-day the -day impacts of VOG and, and communicating that, uh, but also a, a real-time in place um, during an eruption type of use case uh, that can inform things like evacuation and protect 
health and safety um, during an event like that. Um, those are just some examples. Uh, you know, we can't help but look at uh, other parallels across disaster recovery and, and, and climate change adaptation in terms of how, again, you know, imperfect systems for a contemporary application uh, folks are struggling with. And, and we look to do the same here. So Douglas, uh, in closing, um, it would be really helpful to our listeners if you could point them to some uh, resources, either online or elsewhere, uh, that would help them learn more about this subject. Sure. Uh, in December, we actually released a number of plans that talk about, address, and, and really chart a path forward um, in this recovery process. Uh, both our overarching Kilauea Recovery and Resilience Plan, um, a more focused economic recovery plan, um, and as well as well as a volcanic risk assessment that looked at these issues island wide uh, to inform future hazard planning. Uh, to access this information, people can go to our website, uh, recovery.hawaiicounty.gov. Um, and uh, there's a plethora of information there that we also really use as a platform to, um, you know, get information out to the community. Um, everything from accessing resources to uh, some of the signs that we spoke to. Okay, great. And thank you very much for joining us for this podcast. It's been, we, I have personally learned a great deal from listening to you. Thank you. Yeah, that's my pleasure. Thanks for having us. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the American Planning Association podcast. For resources on hazard mitigation and disaster recovery, visit planning.org slash resilience. To hear past episodes of the APA podcast, visit planning.org slash podcast. And make sure to subscribe to the show on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts.